Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Dr. Gladys McGarry, MD. She's the author of The Well-Lived Life, a 102-year-old doctor's six secrets to health and happiness at every age. And I guess if Gladys is 102 or more, then she's my oldest guest that I've ever had on the podcast. I had Uh one fellow Uh that was, uh, I believe, 94, 95. So you beat him. Welcome, Gladys. Well, thank you. I'm yeah. happy to be this old and be asked. <laughs> well, just for a quick intro, tell me your whole life story. I'm just, I'm just kidding. But, uh, <laughs> tell me a bit about your background and how you got to where you are. Yeah, yeah. in the beginning. <laughs> so, no, I'm in Scottsdale, Arizona, and uh, I retired from the practice of medicine 20 years ago or something like that. But decades, de- you know, they telescope for me. They get one decade gets mixed up with another. Mm. Anyway, I still do consulting, but that's you know I'm not I'm not licensed to practice at this point. So okay, well, tell me a bit about you know maybe some of the really amazing or cool events you know in your in your career as a doctor that led you to write the book. Well, you know, I was born and raised in India. My parents were medical missionaries. They were both osteopaths. And so I grew up watching them take care of the village people out in the jungles of North India. And wow. I, at, uh, when I was two, I let them know that I was a doctor too, because my dolls got sick and stuff. So it yeah. was, uh, my, my sister wouldn't let me play with hers because she didn't want hers to get sick. Anyway, it was that kind of a upbringing where I really understood at a depth level within my core, that what my parents were doing in the jungles of India was loving those people. And they didn't make any difference who came or into the camp for, uh, you know, it was a medicine tent and mm-hmm. they took care of anybody who came. There wasn't any distinction, but if they were coming for help, my parents gave it to them. And to me, that was a, that open-hearted acceptance of who the people were not what the disease process was, but who the people were and what they were looking for. And that's what I took into the whole field of medicine when I was thinking about being a doctor. That's really cool. That's a nice, uh, that's great that you had parents like that. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So you grew up in India. That's crazy. Uh, How long did you all live there before you left? (laughs) Well, I still have family out there. My parents after they, well, they stopped going into the jungles and all of that. They started a school for the children of leper parents. These children had no place to go in that. They had no life. So they started a school for the children of leper parents. And that's still going on. And I have a grand nephew, I guess he is, that is the one that's running it right now. So I have deep connections with India still. Okay. Any really fond memories of what it was like? you know, growing up there? 
and it's been, you know, I, I'm curious because, you know, you've lived a long time and you'll know things that almost nobody knows nowadays because you lived them and experienced them. That's why I wanted to ask you. Yeah, well, it's a good question <laughs> and one that uh, I love answering because the kids that I played with kept rubbing my arms to try and get the white color off. <laughs> wow. Isn't that lovely? That's funny. <laughs> yeah. So, were, you, were you like the only, I mean, besides you and your parents, were you the only white person in most of these communities? Yeah, they probably the only ones that we had seen, that the people had seen. But maybe once in a while there had been a, a British soldier who came through or something. But the people that went into the jungles to help the village people were very scarce. <laughs> so this, the work that my parents did was uh, really, a, I thought, in my heart, it was a way to live, <laughs> you know. So it was, it was great and colored the whole my whole life. In fact, my mother had a statement that she used all through the life, and I've had my use through mine. Is if you get into a situation and it, you don't really know what to do about that, you make do. The make do part of how to get through situations and live through them is something that is very important in my life and has led the way I've done things in the field of medicine. In fact, when I started a medical school, I went to Women's Medical College in Philadelphia, which was the only women's medical college in the country. And we started with 50 students and only 25 of us graduated because the faculty felt that the world that we were going out into as women doctors was going to be so hard that we had to be tougher and smarter and all of that than the guys. Mm. So if we did something that was not quite acceptable, it was very easy to just flunk us out. However, what the dean did with me was send me to the psychiatrist a couple of times because she thought my attitude towards healing was wrong. Really? Wow. What did she think? You were crazy? Or what what, no, well, like, what kinds of attitudes did you have that were contrary to what she thought? Well, it's the one that's still there. All of medicine is a war against disease and pain. We're supposed to diagnose a disease and get rid of that disease and try and minimize pain to the <laughs> so that it goes away. And mm. I don't see diseases as our enemy. I see them as teachers. My body is mm. trying to teach me something when I have something going on because they're, see, the way I look at medicine, and this was probably considered crazy at the time. I don't know what. The, the psychiatrist always sent me back, so it was good <laughs> for me. But when my oldest son was a is now a retired orthopedic surgeon in up in North, well, he's up Washington State. Anyway, when he came through Phoenix after he'd gotten his training, he was going down to Del Rio, Texas, to start his practice. And he says, Mom, I'm real scared. I'm going to go into the world. I'm going to have people's lives in my hands. I don't know if I can handle that. And I said to him, well, Carl, if you think you're the one that does the healer, healing, 
You have a right to be scared. But if you can realize that you have the ability to do what you have been trained to do, this orthopedic stuff is amazing. If we need an orthopedic surgeon, we need a good one. You know, we want, we need to have the kind of thing that you know how to do. But when you have done your job and during the time that you're working on that, you then turn the actual healing over to the patient who has within them what I call a physician within them that allows, that takes over the healing part of it. So the whole process of healing is a cooperation between the physician who is the licensed physician on the outside and the physician within the patient who then really does the healing. Because if they if they don't hear what you're saying or if they don't accept it, or if they don't do it, then you can't do anything about that. But if you lovingly make friends or or acknowledge that reality of the, the, that the patient is the one who does the real healing, you you've got a good good thing going. And the healing. Well, someone someone told me once that people are not ill because they lack a certain drug, which I thought was a weird statement. But then when I thought about it, it makes sense. Like you know, no one's sick because they lack metformin let's say you know they have a deficiency in it so maybe this goes along with what you're saying i don't know right right because each one of us see i think everything that we have and do and work with is a team to us i think that we each have our own way and and a path to follow and if we can find that and make friends with our own healing ability, the physician within us, we've got a good guide to work with. Because I think our dreams can tell us what's going on. I think that what happens to us with our bodies and so on can tell us what's going on. Maybe we can uh, use the uh, amazing technology and and have it be part of, you know, the, uh, the healing process. But my parents had nothing except this trunk of some medical procedures, but they had nothing, and yet they were getting healing. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700-plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. What, they, what were they doing that's different from today's doctors? And what, what, listen, what did you see worked? They listened to the patient. They listened to what the patient was telling them. And then they worked with that patient and lovingly created a healing environment so that the patient then realized that there was something that they could do and they could take home. See, I, a, what, a number of years ago, I, in my mind, created what I call the five L's of healing. And it was because I was trying to structure my thinking about about this whole subject, you know. And I realized 
that these five L's, the first two were life and love. Life and love can't function without each other. It's like a seed in the pyramid. It can be there for 5,000 years and not do anything until love in the form of light and water and so on gets to it and softens the shell so that life then can burst out and it can become what it needs to be. It's like a pregnancy. A pregnancy is the mother and the baby during the pregnancy are one unit. The baby eats what the mother eats. The baby sleeps when the mother sleeps. It's, it's, oh, sometimes they also, but there is a relationship that is a life-giving relationship where for the nine months, however long it's taking this pregnancy to go on, the unit is one unit, but it becomes the being, the person, the, the, entity becomes their own person when they take their first breath. So when that first, like the essence of life moves into their possession, they then are in charge of what they eat and how they sleep and all of that. But it's that that first breath that separates the life and love. So then the third L so those two, you can't separate. They, they they need to work together. They have to be a unit. The third L is laughter. Laughter without love is cold. It's mean. Families fall apart because the wars are created before. But laughter with love is loving, is love, you know, it's joyful, it's happy. It's It's the essence of what we're really like to be. It moves with joy and happiness. The fourth L is labor. Oh man, I've got to go to work. There are too many diapers. We drag ourselves through the process of life as it's presenting ourselves. Or we can do it with allowing that heavy feeling be something that we really want. It becomes bliss. If we, if we put love into it, then that's, you know, you work. If you're doing the thing that you love to do, which I probably think you are doing now, it's because mm. you really want to do it and you put 10 times as much work into it as you would if you were dragging yourself through it. You know, it's, it's right, exactly. because labor with love is bliss. It's this is what I'm here to do, you know, it's that. Yeah, but a lot of jobs have become thankless. And I think <laughs> the way people are forced to do their jobs yeah, sucks their soul away. And right. maybe that's why they drag themselves through the day. Right, right. Or if you can find some joy in that, if you can find some laughter, you know, there are people who do mundane jobs, but they they find some light in it. They can find some joy or or something in it that allows them to use their bliss to move, you know. So they move into into the work not as drudgery, but because their soul is calling them. And maybe it's just to be a gardener. Maybe maybe it's being a mother. You know, whatever it is. If that's your soul calling, you time does not exist there. You know. You do what you have to do because you want to do it. You love doing it. You have put the whole aspect of love 
into the factor and it, it becomes amazing. And then the fifth L is listening. Listening without love is empty sound. You know, you can just say, you can tell a person, you know, they're they're just, you can hear something over and over again and not pay any attention to it. And it, it doesn't mean anything. But listening with love becomes understanding. You understand what it is that is working or, or what needs to be done or the relationship. So the love becomes the activating factor for me of any healing process, of anything that is that we're working with in the field of medicine. If we're doing it in a loving manner, it's healing. Why do you think so many doctors seem to be cold-blooded and analytical and maybe afraid to connect with their patients? Or, they, you know, it seems like they would scoff at love. Well, because they think their job is to get rid of the disease. And I, I don't mind working with chronically ill patients because I can work with them. And, you know, Franklin Roosevelt had post-polio syndrome. He became president. I know people that have chronic illnesses that are <laughs> amazing people. They they incorporate their life love process into how they're doing things and they're successful. So it's not the disease that we need to get rid of. It's not the pain. I have uh, patients and friends who have lived with chronic pain. I had one patient who just died a couple of months ago at the age of 78, who had lived her whole life with one quarter of one kidney. That's not possible. Wow. No, None of us doctors ever understood how she did it. Well, she did it because the physician within her knew what to do and what not to do. She had this relationship going and she asked, she came to us and we would talk to her and work with her and all. But then she to did what her body told her was right, the process of what we were telling her. So it's, it's a matter of this life force being something that has to keep moving. If you, if you get stuck, life stops. Life has to move. And so it's that active process of life, of love, allowing life to continue to move that makes us have a, what I, I consider life to be a hoot. I mean, I love it. Have you gotten better results? You know, a higher percentage of people getting better? And if so, do you believe that's because of how you administered to them, essentially? Or, you know, have you compared your results to other doctors or you don't care? Well, I started the American Holistic Medical Association. And, you know, <laughs> now people are beginning to pay attention to their diets. And what I consider they're reaching for their true humanity. These are, this isn't a doctrine. It's, it's not something that I preach or anything. It's just something that I think is that when God, whatever God is to each one of us, whatever God is, when he, when that energy created the universe, it was beautiful. And she looked at the universe and said, oh, this is gorgeous. You know, I, I love this place and I've done a really good job of creating this. And then she created the human being and said to us as humans, you're the only entities 
living energies on this universe, in this universe that has free will and choice. I now give you dominion over this universe. And we, in our arrogance, thought she said dominance. So we took over and we decided, okay, we can do what we want to with this earth and so on. And look what we've done. In reality, she said dominion, which means you take care of them. You take care of this earth. And I, what I'm finding now is a lot of people are listening to this inner being of themselves. And I think that, that we're reaching for our true humanity. And I think that's why they're listening. And I think that's why a lot of these people who have chronic illnesses, who pay attention to what their body tells them and so on, it's like E.T. reaching for home, you know? It's mm. that inner uh, longing for that we have to be able to find, follow our love, follow our bliss, follow what makes us really sing and, and dance and want to be alive. Well, one thing I got is it appears that the way that you would interact with your patients connected them more with their own bodies and how they feel. And I would guess in opposition to that, most doctors, because of how they're trained and they see disease and they want to cut it out, they want to burn it out, they want to medicate it out, uh, that people become more disconnected with their bodies and with their right. feelings. Because maybe what they say is ignored or, oh, that's not relevant or you know, so it seems like the practitioner really can steer how someone sees their own health and how they live. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a neurologist not too long ago, and he was telling me that he had the experience. He, he had been working with the residents, you know, in training, and he went with this. He was called by this one uh, patient to with this resident to come and see them. He was going into the patient's room. But when he got to the room, the uh, resident was standing outside the door. And he says, all right, let's go in. And she says, oh, there's no sense of going in there. I, I don't need to go in there. And he said, what? She said, he has Alzheimer's. He doesn't know anything that I'm saying. And he mm. said, now, wait a minute. Don't you realize that in that room, you have two patients? You have his wife, who understand everything that you're saying and will take the time and love and everything to do what she could do to help her husband understand it. And you've got two patients in that room, not just one. And not only that, but you have to touch him. You have to make contact with him. It's a sad thing that medicine has gotten technologically so involved with its own technology that it has forgotten that the really the only healing that really happens deeply within a person is when there is a connection with the physician without and the physician within. There's that, that loving relationship. When that happens, wonderful things happen. If that doesn't happen, if you don't touch the patient, my youngest son is an a ophthalmologist and flagstaff, and he said, when he was in his residency, he saw one of his one of the doctors that was going on rounds with him. When he took blood pressures, he didn't just reach over and take the patient's arm and do the blood pressure. He put the, his arm around the patient in a hug, and then did that. And he said, "I when I saw that, I said to myself, 
that's the kind of doctor I want to be. So it's, <laughs> it's we as physicians, I, I think, who have been doing this a long time, uh, have the responsibility to allow ourselves to be the ones who can carry the joy and the bliss of working with medicine. So it's not just technology. It's not just the amazing tools that we have now to work with. It's how those tools are being used, you know? And and so I, when I was working with patients, I had patients who to me and say, because I had sent them to a specialist or something, they'd say, they, but, but they didn't listen to me. So then I would oh, yeah. take what they had gotten from that physician and we would interpret it so that they could understand what it was. You know, something you said earlier, I just spoke to someone today that talked about the disease of aging. I said, what? Is said, oh, aging is considered a disease. So, I mean, that kind of plays into, you know, what you're saying about, you know, how, how modern medicine and how medicine, I guess, for a long time has looked at things. Because not yeah. only it's a war, but even aging itself is a war. It's a, a thing to fight. It's a disease. What, yeah. what, are you, what are your thoughts when someone says that aging is a disease? <laughs> I say, I don't think so. I'm calling it aging into health. You see, <laughs> I think right now, my eyes, I have glaucoma and I've had, had cataracts and so on. I can't see very well. My my eyesight is poor, but there's nothing wrong with my insight. In fact, it's gotten better. So I think that we use what we can use and make it be what it needs to be. And I call that aging into health. Our, who has a right to tell us that we're going to die when we're 80 years old or say we can't have a president, you know, all that stuff? Who, I mean... I went to Afghanistan to work with birthing women in Afghanistan who were the maternal birth rate was, I mean, maternal death rate in Afghanistan at that time was higher than any place else in the world. And my brother was created future generations, which was doing this kind of work around the world. And he asked me, I was getting ready to retire. I was 86 years old. I was getting ready to retire from my practice. So I went over to Afghanistan and worked with those women. And we were able to change their maternal mortality rate. I didn't change it. I taught the women what they needed to know. And they taught them. And then they changed it. Women if you teach women something, they want to teach others. I mean, our core, you know, we teach our kids and we we share with each other and do the things that we need to do. But, but it's that ability to see if there's a need someplace. It's, I call it femifesting. You know, we, we, well, let me See, I work with people's dreams too. And I work with my yeah. own dreams and it's been a, great help. About 10 years ago, I woke up one morning with a big crash. And when I woke up, I was half in the dream and half out of the dream. And what I saw was I saw myself in a valley in the high Himalayas. And on the right-hand side, I saw a young woman splayed out on the ground, barely alive. And on the left side, the same thing, a huge man in armor in the same position, barely alive. Mm. And the voice came to me and said, you humans have been 
fighting each other uh, with your fists eons of time. It's time you put your fingers together and work together. Mm. And I realized when I was thinking about the dream that the woman was on the right-hand side of in my dream, and that's the masculine side. And the man was on the left-hand side, and that's the feminine side. And so we'd gotten things mixed up in our, our whatever, and we, we've been fighting this battle of the sexes and trying to figure out what's going on. When if we opened our hands and put our fingers together, we could begin to understand what was happening. So I had a friend... <laughs> And she was, she, she's a good friend of psychic and so on. Anyway, I called her and I told her about this dream. And she says, you know, I've been thinking about something. She says, we talk about manifesting all the time. She says, I think that's like Jacob's ladder. You get a degree and then you do something, then you do something and you get a, you know, you climb Jacob's ladder. That's manifesting. And I think we've been really working at manifesting. And maybe there's another word that would work better for us as women. And that's feminifesting. She said, if with feminifesting, you don't have a Jacob's ladder, you have a spiral and you can be up on the fifth rung of the spiral and know what's going down on the second rung, going on in the second rung. And, you know, that's, that's how we work with things. And so if we take our uh, work as it is and do it the way we can do it, instead of trying to manifest or trying to do something, and you know, then we can begin to understand what it is that we're doing. Then we can age into health. Then we can t- use our life force to be what it is and manifest what needs to manifest. It's the whole process of our dual, dual nature on this planet. So, you know, that the dreams like that have been very, very important to me. Well, very good. What's the best place for people to start learning more about you? Should they go for the book first, or what would you recommend? Well, the book has six secrets that are would would be helpful for them. But if they want to just look up GladysMcGarry.com, they could find me. Okay. Are you still only 102 now, or have you have you gotten to 103 yet? I'm next on next month. I'll be 103. Oh wow! I, I've got a lot of work to do. I want to start a village for living medicine because that's mm. what I'm calling. We started calling it holistic medicine, and that but that's morphed into the concept of living medicine. So that you know, if we're work, if we're reaching for life as at its fullest. Then that's bliss and that's life. And so I call it aging into health and living medicine. Mm, okay. Well, very good, Gladys. It was great to do this call with you. And I really appreciate uh, your time and, you know, how you, you help people and how you're showing people how to help other people and for them to help themselves health wise. Cause I think we need it desperately. Healthcare doesn't seem to be doing too well and going in the wrong direction. So thank you again. Yeah. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? 
Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.